Welcome to this episode of Talking Rotary. I'm Peter Tong, and I'm a member of the Rotary Club of Winnipeg, Charleswood. And I am Andy Kwasnika, past president and also a member of the Rotary Club of Winnipeg, Charleswood. We are so happy you have joined us. Peter and I are so excited for this new podcast and thankful to our many listeners. Let's start talking Rotary. everyone this is peter tong welcome to another episode of talking rotary i'm here with hans Eborde, and he's from the rotary club of geneva international hans how are you yes hi peter very nice to be on the show with you nice to nice to meet you so hans perhaps we'll start a little bit and let me know the kinds of things that your rotary club does well i'm a member of the rotary club geneva international that's the only Rotary Club in Geneva, Switzerland, that is English-speaking. All the others okay. are French-speaking. Okay. And uh, this is a very, very active club. We have a lot of national projects, but also international projects in various countries of the world. So it is a, it is a fairly active and uh, club that has lots, of course, of international staff residing in Geneva. You know, Geneva is a fairly international city, so in the internationals, the expatriates, come to Geneva, then they tend to come to our club more than the other clubs. Sure, and does that sort of give the club more of a global focus than local, or is it really a mix? I think so. I think we have almost as many members as we have nationalities. Well, maybe oh. that's a slight exaggeration, but we have members from more, more than 30 different countries. That's, yeah. that's, that's amazing. So the club is officially English, but there's lots of languages happening around the room, I suspect. Yes, that's it, the case. It, Interesting. Now, um, so that my listeners know, I came across the article in the April 2022 edition of Rotary Magazine, where you talk about clearing landmines, and we're going to talk about that. But what I wanted to start with, Hans, a little bit was your work with the International Committee of the Red Cross, because I think that's where this all started, right? Yes, that's true. I, when I was a younger, I worked for several years with the International Committee of the Red Cross. And uh, I spent several years in the, in the field in war-stricken countries. Right. And uh, mainly at, in those days, ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, was very much involved in war surgery, helping people survive after being hurt in a conflict. Right. And I right. spent years also in surgical war hospitals in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. And that's where I saw firsthand that many of the people brought from the battlefields to the hospital were actually not soldiers or not combatants. They were civilians. And most of them were not wounded by bullet wounds, but they were, they were wounded or hurt by explosions and very often by landmines. So... Already in those days, many victims that were brought to the ICRC hospitals were actually women, children, elderly people, and not at all people who were participating in the in the fighting uh, as such. Yes. So I thought this was pretty pretty dramatic, and that's where the idea came up: can't we do something against the terrible landmines that hurt civilians more than anybody else? 
Absolutely no. Were you, were you working in the hospitals because you had a medical background, or you just happened to find yourself in the middle of this? No, I was an economist by training, and I was working there as a, an administrative coordinator. So, you know, I cared for money matters and procurement and local staff issues and vehicles and logistics and things like that. It must have been, I mean, it would be difficult for anybody to sort of see that damage happening, but to to come from something like an economist background, that must have been quite a shock. Yes, absolutely. It was shocking, really. Come from, say, Switzerland, then travel to these war-stricken countries, end up in a war surgical hospital and be confronted firsthand with what it means to be hurt or wounded during a conflict. Yes, indeed, it was shocking. But you, did, you really turned that into something positive because you started a foundation for the removal of landmines, right? Yes, that's true. I, I spent about maybe 12, 13 years with the International Committee of the Red Cross. And upon leaving, I wanted to keep a little bit still involved in the humanitarian field. And right. together with friends, we, we created an association that wanted to fight landmines. Why? Because we had all been very impressed by the inability of all the existing organizations to find landmines. In those days, about 25 years ago, there were no landmine clearance organization. And everybody felt that landmine clearance should be done by armies. But the armies of the world declared already then, that's not our job. Okay. That's not our job. We, we're not here to clear agricultural land and clear civilian land. That's not what armies do. Armies lay mines and they may also breach minefields to go through, but the clear up after the war is not the job for the army. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it kind of seems a shame that they can wash their hands of it, but I understand. So when you started this work and started the foundation, was that, was that pre-1997? Yes, yes, it was 1997. So it, it was very much the days of the Ottawa Convention. Okay. And of course, I heard a lot about that because the president of the ICRC in those days, he was basically the one who pushed the convention. The first time the idea came up of the Ottawa Convention, it was the president of the International Red Cross that basically brought up the idea. So we were very much involved in this whole work leading up to the Mine Ban Treaty, which was later called the Ottawa Convention. Yeah. Now, I know a little bit about the Ottawa Convention only because I'm a Canadian and I was actually living in Ottawa in 1997. So as, as our little peacekeeping nation of Canada, we're quite proud of that. But can you, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the convention sets out? Well, the, the, the urge at, the, at those times was to basically forbid the use of antipersonal landmines. The feeling was that antipersonal landmines um, bring a lot of, of hardship to civilians. It's unfair. It's militarily not really justified anymore. And landmines should be forbidden. And the convention really basically brought the states parties together to sign and agree that the, these countries, the signature would not use landmines anymore, but furthermore, they would destroy all landmines and they would clear all the land affected by landmines. That was the engagement that the state parties took upon signing the convention. And as we have seen over the last 25 years, most countries of the world have now signed the conventions and there was a lot of movement going on in the positive sense that antipersonal landmines are not really used anymore by 
any army in the world. I mean, there are, there are scattered uses by armed groups, but generally armies of the world don't use landmines anymore. So I think the, the, anti, the, the landmine con, convention basically has brought a lot of good to the world. Even so, it also has a lot of limitations. It, it sounds like that, that's very good that, that the countries aren't producing or, or using landmines anymore, but I get the impression that they didn't live up to the part of the treaty to remove the landmines. Is that fair? Well, uh, that's fair, yes. Some countries have done a lot of work to clean up the landmines, but many countries have clearly been unable to do so. I mean, let's say landmine clearance, humanitarian landmine clearance is mostly done in countries which do not have the means to clear the landmines themselves. And it is done with funds from the rich countries who are willing to fund this operation. So the countries who don't clear up the landmine problem in their own countries, typically just countries who do not have the means, who cannot right. really afford it. Yeah. So these are these are these are are, are, are very poor countries that, that that don't don't have the resources or don't have the means to do that. But same countries that are probably also struggling with their medical systems and all those kinds of things. Yes, and it's typically, let's say, countries that emerge after a war. Let's say right. there is a war, there is a use of landmines and all sorts of explosive devices. So the country is polluted after the war. And then typically humanitarian landmine clearance needs to happen. But typically these countries which just come out of the war, they don't have the means. So this is then part of the international effort to get the country back on its feet, that the international help basically provides them the service of helping clear up landmines and other unexploded ordnance. So where is humanitarian landmine clearance happening today? It's happening in almost 100 countries in the world, more wow. or less to some degree. But let's say the biggest, there are a few countries which concentrate the bulk of the humanitarian demining work. Right. It's the countries like Afghanistan or um, Angola or, or the former Yugoslavia. But um, you have many other countries that are, have a problem with landmines and sea uh, clearance. Wow, that's a hundred countries. That's a lot, the, you know. And and some of them, some of them, of course, as you say, Afghanistan, Angola are very recognizable. But there's that's that's a lot of countries in in my mm -hmm. mind. So um, the the article that I read sort of describes it very very briefly. But uh, how how does an organization go about actually removing the landmines? Well. I mean, first of all, you need to get the green light from the country concerned that they let you work. And that's actually a big obstacle. It's often a process that can take a year or two or three years to okay. get in. Uh, but once you get the green light, then you also need to have a plan and you need the money. So there is also uh, quite a bit of work involved just to make sure it's financed and you're authorized to do the work. Once, once you have that, typically we send a few sp a handful specialists to those countries who then train, recruit, and train locals. We, we don't do the mining within locals. Okay. And that's the idea that, of course, right from the start, to build a local capacity for the day when we are leaving again. So we build up teams that we train to be deminers or uh, all the various other functions that is needed in a minefield. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have to bring the equipment in. And then we start with a process that is called typically land release. So we look at all areas considered or deemed to be dangerous. 
and we try to determine, yeah, dangerous maybe, but is it possibly a minefield or is it not the minefield? Can we release the land because it's actually safe? And there is a whole methodology to go about it. And in the end, of course, there are probably minefields and we need to clear them. And uh, once the clearance starts, this is pretty intense and, 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 and time consuming and an expensive um, process, of course. So we spend, we try to spend a lot of effort on land release, on trying just to basically clear land without technical means. Right. But once we get to the hard part of really clearing it, well, then it's done in a fairly traditional way with um, metal detectors, possibly with the use of dogs, possibly with the use of mechanical demining machines. And it's the combination of all these tools that allows us then to clear the land and to basically guarantee that the land is safe for civilian use. That must, when you get down to the point of actually uh, looking for landmines using things like metal detectors, that has to be incredibly dangerous work. It is dangerous work. It is absolutely inherent dangerous work. Now we go to great pains and to great length to keep our staff safe. Uh, by training and by protective equipment, by procedures right. and so on. But it is a dangerous thing to do. And unfortunately, accidents do happen. So when you are a humanitarian landmine clearance organization, then unfortunately, every now and then, an accident might still happen. Of, of, of course, given, given I mean, the, the inherent level of, of danger. I mean, people are, are removing, removing bombs, but... Uh, I was very happy to read that the, the accidents were, were very rare. Possibilities are all around us. We see potential in unexpected places. And when we share our knowledge, vision, and connections, we turn great ideas into action. Together, we can make real change happen. We're Rotary. We are people of action. Get involved today at rotary.org/action. Where do you see this going over the next five years? Let's say, is it, is this something that's going to be going fifty years into the future, or what? Well, I think. I think generally there will be a lot of work for years to come. Why? Because there are always new wars. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but I think there are still a few trends. One is a positive trend. I think the number of victims of landmines, of antipersonal landmines, is decreasing every year. Good. Ever since the Ottawa Convention was signed, many states have made an effort to reduce the danger from landmines, and the use is now really down. So that's the good thing. There are less and less victims from landmines. But there is a counter trend, unfortunately, which is not so good. And that is... While the fighters of the world don't use landmines anymore, they use a lot of other things that might explode and harm civilians. So we have seen, for instance, in country where you have the Islamic State, Daesh, the use of these improvised explosive devices, which actually are just uh, homemade mines, mm. right? They are not called landmines, but they function the same way. Right. And so the number of people getting hurt by improvised explosive devices that just act as mines but are not, don't fall under the convention, this use has gone up and the number of victims are just staggering with how many people get hurt generally by explosive remnants of war, right? 
So the landmine, the landmine part is getting smaller, but the overall part of people getting hurt by explosive remnants of war is still strikingly high. Wow, that, that's, a, that's a chilling phrase, the explosive remnants of war. And I mean, that's what, wow. And it's true because when I, I'm, I mean, I've never, I've never been in, in a war zone or anything like that, but anything that I saw or read about Afghanistan, it was often talking about these, these improvised explosive devices, right? But as you say, with their homemade, homemade landmines. Um, does that, does that suggest that the convention needs to be expanded or we just have to accept the part that some improvisation is going to happen during war? I mean, I don't know. Well, I would say with, with hindsight, it's clear that the focus of the anti, the mind bank convention was too narrow. Okay. When it was done, it was great to do something against anti-personal landmines, but for instance, anti-vehicle mines, anti-tank mines, all other sorts of mines don't fall under the convention. Right. And, and it have, the perception of what is a danger and what mine, what, what D-miners do has also changed over the year. 25 years ago, we just had staff that were looking for landmines, but now any D-miner is dealing with a wide array of explosive remnants of war. And they would fall under different conventions. There are some, for instance, there is a, a convention that does not allow the use of cluster ammunitions, which again, function a little bit like landmines. But now, of course, I think it would be a stretch to say we want to do conventions just to cover every single item that can end up as an explosive remnant of war. I think just the fact that there are wars will always lead to a pollution with explosive dangers once the war stops. So I'm afraid the problem is not just going away. No, and the example, of course, I'm thinking about right now is Ukraine, because technically these armies aren't supposed to use and maybe aren't using personal landmines, but there's probably some other version of these that are that are being used. Have you had any reports about that? Or I, I haven't heard yes. a lot, but... Yes, I mean, you, I mean, not firsthand, but I have seen a lot of videos, YouTube and others, where clearly you see that landmines are being used, especially anti-tank mines, anti-vehicle mines. Right. So yeah, right. clearly both, both parties in the conflict seem to use mines, but the most immediate threat for the local population is now not mines. It's just the unexploded ordnance that these cities have been bombarded heavily, and a lot of these shells, rockets, and bombs and missiles have not exploded, they have not functioned properly, and they are still there. This is the most immediate danger for the population. And so our plan is as soon we are in Ukraine, and we have been clearing landmines for the last five years, but the plan is as soon as the, 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 the fighting would stop, let's say if there is a ceasefire, then my teams will immediately get involved in moving to the cities and clearing the unexploded ordnance. This is the, the biggest threat for the, for the population. Yeah, I, I saw a story, I guess, earlier or late last week where there was a, a um, rockets had hit a train station and there were actually unexploded rockets sticking out of the ground right at the train station. Absolutely. You saw these images a few days ago of the the missile that had Kramat, that hit Kramatorsk, this missile yeah. carried a container with cluster ammunition that was spread all over the, the area and then descended and created explosions and lots of civilians were killed this way. 
Oh, I know. Just, so these just... are these are weapons which should not be used, and these are clearly weapons which fall under a convention, and no country on the on the, on this planet should be should be using these weapons. But unfortunately, we see the indiscriminate use of weapons that harm civilians, maybe more than military staff. So that raises a thought in my mind. Do the teams that you work with have a role to play with investigators when they're investigating things like war crimes and the types of ordinances that they find and things like that? Not generally. In some cases, yes. In some cases, tribunals have already asked us to provide evidence or help them with investigations, but it's not typically a job that we are doing. Okay. We are humanitarian D-minus and we just work for the benefit of local populations to keep them safe. We usually usually don't take political mandates. We we try to avoid taking party and we just try to be technical a technical service provider for the common good. Right, then that's a really good point, right? Because um, you, if you if you start taking sides, you're not going to get access to the areas you, you want to do your work. Exactly, and it is also our security, because we often work in areas which are not completely safe, where there are a lot of tensions. The fighting has just started. Our only right. security is our trustworthiness, and that everybody in the conflict sees our deminers as trustworthy people that are not taking sides that are not making statements, and they just are focused on doing the job. That's the only way to keep our staff safe. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me as, as I think it through. Um, now, if someone is listening to this podcast and they want to help, what's the best way of doing that? Well, if they want to help uh, my organization, FSD, then of course they can go on our website and do a donation. I think that's one of the best things they could do, but okay. that's not the only one. That's not the only one. I think also info, providing more information to others about the problem of landmines, getting involved in the fight against landmines. There are many different ways how people can become active to reduce the overall size and the extent of the problems. But very directly, if somebody wants to support our organization, go to fsd.ch. There is a donation page. Make a donation, and the money will end up in 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 our in our system to pay D miners and pay equipment and help keep people safe. We we only have one standard question in our podcast, and that is you you you're involved with with your Rotary Club and you're involved in Rotary. There are many organizations you could be spending your time with and giving your energy to. Why do you keep coming back to Rotary? Well, why keep why going back to Rotary? Well, for me, Rotary is more than just uh, about humanitarian ventures. Um, of course, in Rotary, what I love most are the projects. And I'm very happy to be in an environment where so many clubs do so much of the good work. But Rotary is also about friendship. Uh, it's not just about helping others. It's a lot about friendship and meeting people, exchanging with others and having a, a sound network of people that you like being with and that you have a trust into. I think Rotary is also about shared values. So that's very important also. So the concrete, the precise action and doing projects in far-flung countries, that's great. And helping the poor and do something for the environment, that's great also. But let's not forget about the values and the friendship. 
Talking Rotary is a proud supporter of Shelterbox, which is an international disaster relief charity that hand delivers the emergency shelter and tools families need to self-recover after natural disasters and conflicts around the world. Shelterbox is proud to be Rotary International's project partner in disaster relief, further strengthening a global circle of friendship. Together, Shelterbox and Rotary are transforming despair into hope for families after disaster. Learn more by visiting shelterboxcanada.org. Very well said. Hans, thank you very much. And we'll stay in touch. This is fascinating work. It's uh, great to see you and very nice to meet you over Zoom. Well, very nice to meet you, Peter. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about landmines. Uh, it was my, my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on another great episode of Talking Rotary. We would love to hear from you. Please send us your comments and story ideas, and you can share with us easily by sending us an email at feedback at talkingrotary.org. Let's keep talking Rotary.